Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Mary Magdalene, sometimes called Mary of Magdala, or simply the Magdalene or Madeline, was a woman who, according to the four canonical gospels, traveled with Jesus as one of his followers and was a witness to his crucifixion and resurrection. She's mentioned by name 12 times in the canonical gospels, more than most of the apostles and more than any other woman in the gospels other than Jesus' own family. 
Historically, the Catholic Church has sidelined Mary, not just because of her gender, but also because of her message. The Catholic Church specifically spread the idea that she was a sex worker in order to devalue her message. Thankfully, in today's day and age, it's becoming more and more difficult for the church to maintain control and the truth of the Magdalene is beginning to appear. She was not, as many would call her, a penitent whore. She was so much more. And today, I'll tell her story. In 2017, the BBC ran a story concerning Mary Magdalene, the woman depicted as a close companion of Jesus in the New Testament. The Vatican has elevated Mary Magdalene's status among the saints to equal that of Jesus' male disciples. A major movie about her life, starring Rooney Mara, was released as well in 2018. Most people will be familiar with this biblical character thanks to novelist Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, who suggested radically that she was Jesus' wife. The Catholic Church, of course, vehemently denies such a notion, and it's certainly not found anywhere in the Bible. However, since the Middle Ages, Mary's portrayal in a different but equally illustrious role has all but been forgotten. She was the guardian of the Chalice of Magdalene, a biblical artifact that may have been the original Holy Grail. Today, the Holy Grail is usually considered to be the cup said to have been used by Christ at the Last Supper. According to the Bible, Jesus shared a final meal with his disciples shortly before he was arrested, tried, and condemned to death. According to legend, one of Jesus' followers, Joseph of Arimathea, used this same cup to collect a few drops of Christ's blood during the crucifixion, thus bestowing the cup with sacred power. Those who drank from it, it was said, could be cured of all ills and even attain immortality. The Da Vinci Code portrayed the Grail as merely a symbolic representation of Jesus' purported bloodline through a secret marriage to Mary Magdalene. But in the original traditions, the Grail was neither of these things. When the Grail first appears in literature, at least the oldest surviving literature, it is in the stories of King Arthur. 
the earliest, is in the work of a French poet around 1190, who describes the Grail relic as a golden plate set with precious stones. As the story remained unfinished upon the author's death, nothing is revealed concerning the Grail's origins. Nevertheless, we are told that to eat from it prolongs life indefinitely. Meanwhile, in Germany, another Arthurian romance was composed by the author Wolfram von Eckenbach, in which he depicts the grail as a magical stone that somehow both nourishes and grants wisdom to those who possess it. And in Britain, an anonymous Welsh tale called Peridur depicts the grail as a severed head, whose we are not told, that imparts words of wisdom. There are medieval works in which the grail is said to be various other items, including a carving of Christ, a book, and even the bones of the Virgin Mary. Even the origin of the word grail is unclear. Despite Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown's popularization of the theory that the old French saint graal, meaning holy grail, comes from the words sang, real, royal blood, most literary scholars believe it to have originated with the medieval Latin word gradalis, meaning a dish or container. Whatever its origin, by the early 1200s, the word had become firmly associated with any especially holy relic thought to have had links with the historical figure Jesus. It was only in the later Middle Ages that the grail came to be regarded exclusively as the cup of the Last Supper, as authors increasingly followed the lead of the oldest known work to portray it as such, Joseph d'Aremeth by Burgundian poet Robert de Boron around the year 1200. As in other Arthurian tales, Robert has the grail sought by Arthur's knights in order to cure the king of an ailment that prevents him from effectively ruling Britain. Many medieval Arthurian romances have one of Arthur's knights, usually Percival, discovering the grail in a chapel in a place called the White Castle, found in the White Town. In England, there is indeed a castle referred to during the Middle Ages by this very name, built of light-colored stone, from which it gets its name. It is in the village of Whittington, in the county of Shropshire, close to the border between England and Wales. Moreover, the name Whittington actually comes from early English, meaning, literally, White Town. In the early 1200s, 
the owner of this castle, a baron by the name of Folk Fitzwarren, became the subject of an anonymously composed romantic tale entitled Fulke le Fitzwarren, in which Whittington Castle is specifically associated with both the Arthurian story and the Holy Grail. Understandably, because this and other Arthurian romances reference the White Castle in the White Town, local tradition has long associated the place with the Grail legend. Fascinatingly, in the mid-1800s, a direct descendant of Folk Fitzwarren claimed that his family had owned the Grail for centuries and that he still possessed it. He was a Shropshire antiquarian named Thomas Wright. Interestingly, the Grail he claimed to possess was none of the items already mentioned, but a scent jar that had supposedly once belonged to Mary Magdalene. According to the Bible, Mary Magdalene did possess such a jar. It was said to have been made of alabaster, and she used it to anoint Christ's head with precious oil as a sign she accepted him as her savior. The New Testament also tells us that Mary went to the tomb to anoint Christ's body with spices shortly after he was buried, as was the Jewish practice at the time, and Christian tradition holds that she took the spices in the same jar and then used it to collect a few drops of Christ's blood when he appeared to her after the resurrection. The jar became famous, but apparently lost as a holy relic during the Middle Ages. And for centuries, paintings of Mary Magdalene have depicted her with the item. It was this very jar, known as the Chalice of Magdalene, which Thomas Wright claimed to have possessed. So what happened to it? Remarkably, in the spirit of the Grail legends, he claimed to have hidden it in a secret location, as he had no children to hand it on to. He left an elaborate trail of clues to lead to its location before his death in 1877. We first learned of this curious story when investigating the Arthurian legends and eventually concluded that Wright probably had possessed something he personally believed to be the Holy Grail and hidden it. He certainly went to a considerable trouble to leave a series of clues to lead to something. And as it might just possibly have been the same artifact thought to be the grail that had been kept at Whittington Castle in the 13th century, we needed to solve this mystery. Initially, however, I doubted that the hidden artifact ever had anything to do with Jesus or Mary Magdalene. The Middle Ages resound with accounts of crusader knights returning from the Holy Land with purported biblical relics, 
most of which were probably sold to them by local people to make a few bucks from the gullible invaders. On the other hand, as the purported chalice of Magdalene appears to have been in the very location, the earliest Arthurian stories place the Holy Grail and was said to have been there when these tales were composed, it might, again, just possibly have been the actual artifact that initiated the Grail legend. Wright's clues were quite involved. They ultimately led to a stained glass window that Wright had designed and installed near where he lived in St. Luke's Church in the village of Hodnet in Shropshire. This stained glass window depicted the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the John figure was unusual. Whereas the other figures were shown holding their gospels, John was shown holding a golden chalice, the traditional depiction of the Holy Grail. What was more remarkable is that on closer examination, the figure appears to be a woman. The other gospel writers are bearded, whereas the John figure is clean-shaven and has decidedly feminine features. Moreover, the figure is wearing a woman's gown that seems to be covering breasts. Could this chalice-holding character represent Mary Magdalene, the very person associated with the sacred grail relic? It was this image that eventually led me to the place where Thomas Wright seems to have hidden his artifact. In the window above the figure's heads are the customary symbols for the four gospels, a bull, a lion, an angel, and an eagle. Four statues depicting these very same symbols had been commissioned by Thomas Wright and erected in a cavern, cut into a hill called the White Cliff at Hawkstone Park, around two miles away. As the image depicted the chalice figure holding an eagle, perhaps it was in Wright's eagle statue that the item was hidden. I was devastated when I discovered that in 1920, a local businessman named Walter Langham had tried to move the statues in order to erect them in his garden. And during the attempt, the eagle statue was broken and its base was discovered in a cavity in which was found what was described as a small stone cup. It seemed that the object Thomas Wright and his family had for generations believed to be the Holy Grail had been found by accident and probably discarded decades ago. However, when I eventually traced Thomas Wright's great-granddaughter to the town of Rugby in central England, I was delighted to find that she still possessed the cup. Neither she nor her family had considered it anything particularly special, having no knowledge of Thomas Wright and his elaborate clues. As far as she was concerned, 
It was simply an interesting oddity. They only held on to it because of the unusual circumstances in which it was found. What was it doing cemented inside a statue? I was astonished to discover that it was still in her attic, buried amongst junk accumulated over the years. When she showed it to me, I was at first disappointed. It was so small, around one and three quarter inches high and an inch and a half wide. It was about the size and shape of an egg cup made of green stone. In fact, because the lip was folded inwards, the Langham family had assumed it had been an old Victorian mustard pot. When I was allowed to take it to the British Museum for analysis, everything changed. It was identified as a scent jar, dating from Roman times, that would have once had a lid. This was exactly what Mary Magdalene's jar was said to be. Astonishingly, by its style, it was dated around the first century AD, precisely the time Mary was said to have lived. Even more remarkable, it was found to be made from green alabaster of a variety only found in Egypt, right next to ancient Judea, where the Bible places the life of Christ. Just as the New Testament tells us, Mary Magdalene's relic had been an alabaster jar. None of this was proof positive that the jar had really belonged to Mary Magdalene or had ever held the blood of Christ, but it was from the right time and the right era and made of the right material to have been the vessel described in the Bible. What, however, in my opinion, it certainly seems to be is the object believed to be the grail at the time the first Arthurian romances were written. It had been kept in the very place these oldest accounts locate the sacred relic, the White Castle in the White Town. If I'm right, then what I located was the object that first started the original grail legend. In effect, the long-lost Holy Grail. In many ways, Mary Magdalene is the most accessible of the female saints, a real human being, unlike the lofty, remote, and far too pure and unreal Virgin Mary. Part of her appeal, to be sure, resides in her embodying a fundamental female identity, which may be very ancient, her principal attribute is the ointment pot or jar, as we've just described. The vessel, however, can also appear in artwork through the ages as a vase, if you're curious and not asleep yet. You can Google Mary Magdalene jar and see how often clever artists throughout the years have portrayed various women holding a similar jar. This is no coincidence, and once you see it, 
You can see it everywhere. There is one statue from the Neo-Sumerian era from 1800 BC, before the life of Christ. It is an ancient Neo-Sumerian statue showing a woman, perhaps a goddess, holding a jar, or a vase, or a chalice, or a grail, out of which flows water. Held at waist level, the vessel appears to be symbolic of the female vagina, and thereby also a metaphor for female sexuality and female power. If you look up a painting by Bernardino Luini called Mary Magdalene from the year 1525, you'll see an image of Mary Magdalene removing the lid of the vessel. This was an especially potent symbol at the time, and you'll see many different paintings of the era of Mary Magdalene removing the lid off of an ointment jar. The action of removing a lid we recognize as belonging also to Psyche, or the opening of Pandora's box. In association with the ancient mythic female principle is perhaps one of the clues to the enduring appeal of Mary Magdalene. And it's also the unacknowledged motif around which have been shaped the various myths and legends that have been attached to this woman over the centuries. The idea of the jar, vase, pot, or chalice is the source of life, but also sometimes seen as the source of evil for men. There's a painting called Eve Prima Pandora from 1550, which is currently in the Louvre in Paris, painted by Jean Cousin. The figure in this painting was based upon a now lost image of Mary Magdalene. Eve, Pandora, or Mary Magdalene reclines nude with one hand on a skull and the other on her ointment jar. A snake, an ancient symbol of the goddess, entwines her left arm which is known as the feminine side of the body, in the way one sees in images of Isis. Members of the Isis cult also wore gold bands in the form of a snake around their left arm. The garbled biblical accounts of Jesus's female follower, Mary Magdalene, barely even conceals to the perceptive eye a woman of incredible importance. This takes us to the next part of our journey. Mary Magdalene is a saint of the Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Lutheran churches. She's honored as a heroine of the faith by Protestant churches. In addition to being a canonized saint, in Southern France and throughout much of Europe, Mary Magdalene was venerated as a Gnostic apostle by the tradition known as the cult of Mary Magdalene, which arose in Provence, France during the 11th century. This was based upon the widespread belief among Catholic scholars that Mary Magdalene and her companions fled persecution in Jerusalem 
crossed the Mediterranean in a boat and landed near Arles in the south of France, since named Sainte-Marie-de-la-Mer. She then retired to the holy cave, Saint-Bon, on a hill in the Marseille region, and converted all of Provence to Christianity. This tradition holds that throughout 30 years, as a Gnostic apostle of Jesus, she taught her own disciples in ancient Christianity from this holy cave, and it was believed that she was in frequent, direct communication with the angels. These legends of Mary Magdalene were widely accepted throughout the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and into the present day. Catholic doctrine holds that at the time of her death, Mary Magdalene was carried by angels to Provence and into the oratory of St. Maximus at Villa Lata, where she received her last rites. In 771 AD, her relics were moved by Gerard, the Duke of Burgundy, to the newly founded Abbey de la Madeleine at Vézelay. Her relics were first venerated at Vézelay in Burgundy, beginning in 1050 AD. Later in 1279 AD, an excavation for King Charles II of Naples discovered an intact shrine of Mary Magdalene at Saint Maximum La Sainte Bombe in Provence. That site featured an inscription explaining why her relics had been hidden there, indicating that it was either the hidden true burial site or an alternate site of partial relics. Southern France, especially the Mary Magdalene site of Aix-en-Provence, was always a major stronghold of the Knights Templar. Since the inception of the Templar Order in 1118 AD, a public square in Aix-en-Provence preserves a 19th century statue of René d'Anjou, Duke of the Templar dynastic house of Anjou and titular king of Jerusalem descendant from the founding Templar king, Fouc d'Anjou. René was the son of Princess Yolande of Aragon, who was interestingly the primary proponent and patron of Saint Joan of Arc, who was a hereditary Templar countess of Anjou. Yolande was the daughter of King John I of Aragon, Spain, where many of the Knights Templar had survived the French persecution from 1307 AD. As a result, many later Templar descendants thrived as an underground network in southern France under the dynastic support of the Templar House of Anjou. Therefore, the 11th century cult of Mary Magdalene had a special connection and a powerful appeal to the 12th century Knights Templar and was always a major component of authentic Templar heritage, even into the modern era. While not all Templars necessarily considered Mary Magdalene to be a Gnostic apostle, many historically did. As Catholics, in any case, the Knights Templar strongly favored her as their special saint. 
Throughout the Middle Ages, at every possible opportunity, the Templars used seemingly normal references to Mary, appearing to mean Mother Mary, to instead privately emphasize the central importance of Mary Magdalene in their hearts and in their prayers as a pillar of Templar culture. The Temple Rule of 1129 AD features a key reference emphasizing Our Lady of God in equal balance with Jesus, using the unique old French word, Dame Dieu, which specifically represents the feminine aspect of God. A related reference in the original Latin identifies Our Lady as the Saint Mary and not the Virgin or Mother, highlighting Saint Mary Magdalene as a Gnostic apostle of Jesus. It specifically declares that the Templar priests of the order serve by the authority of Our Lady of God, thereby dedicating the order directly to Mary Magdalene. Accordingly, preserving the tradition of Mary Magdalene remains one of the fundamental historical missions which is carried by the modern Templar order even today. The biblical Mary Magdalene was a woman of independent means who helped to support the first apostles of Jesus. The New Testament recounts that Mary Magdalene and many others provided for them out of their resources. This is supported by the references that Mary Magdalene followed him, Jesus, and ministered unto him. Based upon these scriptures, the iconic Templar symbol of her status as a sponsoring patron saint of the apostles is her trademark money pouch. The statue of Saint Joan of Arc inside Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, placed there by surviving 15th century Templars, features a key symbol linking Joan of Arc to Saint Mary Magdalene. In this statue, Joan has a distinctive pouch hanging from her belt, mirroring the iconographic money pouch traditionally depicted on the belt of Mary Magdalene. Confirming this symbolism is another statue outside that same cathedral featuring Mary Magdalene with an apostolic halo wearing her iconic money pouch. The Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg also features a 19th century painting, The Life of Joan of Arc, which depicts St. Joan wearing the money pouch on a red robe, which symbolizes that of Mary Magdalene. In the New Testament, Mary Magdalene was the first to be told by an angel that Jesus had arisen and was specifically appointed by the angel to be the first to tell the other apostles. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the sepulcher of Jesus's tomb. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and said unto women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly to bring his disciple word. Jesus himself appeared to Mary first before any other apostles. From Mark 16.9 is written, Now when Jesus was risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord.
The prominence of leadership of Mary Magdalene in the first century church was confirmed by the authoritative Vatican theologian, St. Augustine, recognizing her as the apostle to the apostles. The very name Magdalene did not mean merely from Magdala, but actually meant the tower. As Mary's nickname and title of prominence and importance among the apostles. For these reasons, Mary Magdalene is widely considered to hold special status as the primary disciple of Jesus, who the Essenes, Cathars, and later Templars regarded as a Gnostic apostle, as well as a patron saint. It was only much later in the 7th century that Pope Gregory mistakenly associated Mary Magdalene with a sinner who washed Jesus' feet, who was also named Mary. However, the Orthodox Church never made that misidentification and maintains that Magdalene is separate and was never any type of sinner, but only venerated as a saint. The New Testament contains two isolated references to Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven devils. This passing mention in two accounts of the same event does not appear in the other two related Gospels. That cryptic reference, which appears out of context, even in the original text, has been assumed to imply that seven demons were cast out of Mary Magdalene, interpreted as a possible exorcism. However, the results of archaeology provide compelling evidence that this is actually a metaphorical short description of the sacred consecration ceremony for a high priestess in the tradition of Nazarene Essenes. The wisdom texts of the Essene scrolls describe in great detail the search for wisdom as a female figure establishing doctrines of the feminine aspects of God. As a result, in the Essene priesthood, women were given initiatory training, and the first century historian Flavius Josephus documented that women were given formal initiation as priestesses equal to men. University professors confirm that Jesus was not of Nazareth, but was actually called the Nazarene, revealing that he was a high priest of the Nazarene Essenes, the original Egyptian Essenes. The town Nazareth did not have that name at the time of Jesus, such that he was not named after the place, but rather the town that was later named after Jesus, the Nazarene Essene. The ancient priesthood of the Essenes, which Jesus the Nazarene Essene had studied in Egypt, and of which he was a high priest, featured practices of spiritual purification using energy sources located at seven points along the spinal column. These energy points are popularly known in other traditions as the seven chakras. In all spiritual traditions, the purpose of all forms of energy work with the chakras is always to clear or cleanse them by removing clouds or blocks of negative energy, often referred to in early Christianity as demons. Naturally, the only way to become a high priestess 
was necessarily to cleanse one's seven chakras, casting out all negative energies, removing all blocks, to ensure that the Holy Spirit would flow strongly through the priestess. Evidence that the apostles had knowledge from the Essenes of how to cleanse the seven chakras is found in a prayer, which is featured in the Gnostic Acts of Thomas. Quote, Come, thou holy name of Christ. Come, compassionate mother. Come, she that revealeth the hidden mysteries. Come, mother of the seven houses, that thy rest may be in the seventh house. Come, Holy Spirit, and cleanse their reins and their heart, and give them the added seal. This invocation is direct evidence from the historical record of an apostolic practice specifically to cleanse the seven houses and give an added seal of connection to the Holy Spirit. This proves the reality of a tradition of consecration of a high priestess by casting out seven demons from their chakras, and that such practice has nothing to do with demonic possession or exorcism, but rather is purification for consecration of a bishop. Therefore, the infamously misinterpreted New Testament reference to Mary Magdalene as the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons is in fact clearly evidence that Jesus himself had consecrated Mary as a high priestess in the ancient tradition of the Essenes, thereby making her the first female apostolic bishop of Christianity. The prayer of St. Thomas that the mother of wisdom may rest in the seventh house is a clear reference to the highest seventh chakra located at the pineal body in the center of the brain. Jesus the Nazarene taught the apostles about the importance of activating the pineal body, which is popularly known in all esoteric traditions as the third eye or single eye and is the natural biological channel for Holy Spirit energies. This is a quote from Matthew 6.22. It says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. This Gnostic teaching of the Essenes known and used by Jesus and his apostles, is also described in Old Testament canonical scripture. In Proverbs 9.1, it says, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath honed or carved out her seven pillars. This establishes that the system of seven energy centers of the human body is associated with the divine feminine aspect of God. In the Old Testament, the spirit of wisdom, always referred to in scripture as she, is described in great detail as being the feminine face of God, the female aspect which is inherent within God. This is also from Proverbs 8.22-31. Wisdom speaks, saying, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, while as yet he had not made the earth. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. 
I was by him, as one brought up with him. The Gnostic scripture, Pistis Sophia, features Mary Magdalene teaching the principles of cosmic spiritual ascent of the soul through prayerful work with the seven spheres of energy. This is supported by the Gnostic scripture Dialogue of the Savior in which Mary Magdalene teaches, There is but one saying I will speak to the Lord concerning the mystery of truth. In this we have taken our stand, and to the cosmic we are transparent. Therefore, the cosmic to which we are transparent is the seven spheres of energy as the seven houses of the biblical seven pillars of wisdom, which are the seven chakras. In 12th century Templarism, the doctrine of the number seven being associated with cleansing purification is found in the temple rule of 1129 AD. Knights were instructed to say prayers for the daytime hour seven Paternosters. Whenever a Templar brother or sister dies, the other Templars are instructed throughout seven days to say 100 Paternosters, and that a pauper shall be given seven days of food for his soul. The Templar order was originally founded specifically as a holy mission to recover ancient scriptures from the historical Temple of Solomon, which contained a library of sacred scrolls placed there by the first century Essenes, who had direct access to that temple. The order was thus based upon recovering the Gnostic scriptures of the Essenes. Those scriptures gave rise to the strong Templar belief that Mary Magdalene was a Gnostic apostle of Jesus. The Gnostic Gospel of Mary shows Mary Magdalene as the senior apostle closest to Jesus. Peter asked Mary, Sister, we know the Lord loved you more than the rest of the women. Tell us the words of the Savior which you remember, which you know, but we do not nor have heard them. And Mary answered with this, What is hidden from you, I will proclaim to you. The apostle Levi then said to Peter, If the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. The Gnostic Gospel of Philip identifies Mary Magdalene as the closest companion to Jesus, even beyond the role of an apostle. It wrote in the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, There were three who always walked with the Lord, Mary, his mother, and her sister, and the Magdalene, the one who was called his companion. The Gospel of Philip says that the Virgin Mother Mary is the mother of the angels and the companion of Mary Magdalene. Jesus loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. Such kissing was actually a traditional greeting among priests of the ancient priesthood of the Essenes. Accordingly, kissing often indicates frequent visits to a master by his disciple. The phrase on the mouth reflects an ancient esoteric principle of conveying sacred wisdom and Holy Spirit energy, metaphorically symbolized as a spiritual breath from the mouth, which was conceptually related to the word of God.
In Christianity, this spiritual concept of kissing on the mouth was first found in one of the 2nd century Cistercian chants, which were also sung by the original 12th century Knights Templar. One of those 12 liturgical chants favored by the Knights Templar features the lyrics, May he, Jesus, kiss me by kisses of his mouth. This was essentially a coded prayer for Jesus to convey divine secret wisdom to the knights as initiates of the Essene priesthood. As a result of all of the historical facts that I've shared with you here, Mary Magdalene is authentically the primary venerated patron saint of the Knights Templar order and the focus of the apostolic heritage of the ancient Catholic Church preserved by the order of the Temple of Solomon. In many ways, the Templar order is dedicated to preserving and continuing the tradition of Mary Magdalene as the saintly and inspirational heart of the original Knights Templar.